Hey guys, it's Lori here. Just letting you know that this episode is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Learn more at csbible.com. Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 189. The church wasn't always so terrible at the LGBTQ conversation. They weren't, Steve. Really? No. Okay. We're going to talk about it. Welcome, guys, to the Hole in My Heart podcast, where we talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and I don't have Matt with me. We were recording this in holiday season, specifically Thanksgiving in the States, and finding babysitters at this time is tough. But hello to the Argyle enthusiast across town, and hello to the ever faithful and most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi, guys. Who is not across town. He is here. (laughs) Man, you guys, we have a treat for you today in this conversation with Pastor Greg Johnson. Uh, We're going to talk about, like Steve said already, how the church wasn't always so terrible at the LGBTQ conversation. We're going to talk about C.S. Lewis. We're going to talk about John Stott. We're going to talk about Billy Graham, uh, Francis Schaeffer, some guys who 50-some years ago were getting it right. (laughs) I think there's so many eye rolls we've done on this very podcast about how the church, oh, it's terrible, terrible, terrible at this conversation, but we weren't always. So what can we learn from them? We're also going to hear a bit about Greg's real pain. Mm. Did you know about that, Steve? No, I didn't know about any of that. I mean, this is very, very informative as a straight guy and just as a human. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you don't know about some of what Greg has been walking through, um, you're going to hear some more as a pastor and who is someone who identifies as gay or same-sex attracted, you're going to hear more about that. And just his hope was encouraging to me. Uh, Before you hear the conversation with him, I did want to remind you guys to rate and review the podcast. If you like this podcast, would you mind taking a second to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and throw down some stars, whatever you think is worthy for us. That would mean a lot. You guys, I'm so excited to welcome to the show today a new friend of the podcast, Greg Johnson. Greg is the lead pastor of historic Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, where he served on pastoral staff since 2003. He holds a PhD in historical theology with a concentration in American religion from St. Louis University and an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary. He was a gay atheist teenager when the beauty of Christianity overtook him in college and he never looked back. Greg, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you, Lori. We're so glad to have you. Before we dive more deeply into your book, which uh, before we started recording, I said it surprised me in a good way, just how you uh, succinctly took 50 years of evangelical sexuality speak and (laughs) put it into a book. You just did such a great job of helping us understand the landscape of the conversation and how it's shifted over the years. Before we dive into that, I do want to hear your story, which isn't unrelated to how the church has engaged sexuality, I'm assuming. Uh, But the question is, if the gospel is I'm more loved than I imagine and yet more sinful than I believe, how did you first get to know that good news gospel story and how has it been good news lately? Yeah, you know, um, I wasn't raised in a church. Uh, I was raised atheist, or more or less. Um, certainly understood myself to be an atheist. And uh, really, toward the end of um, high school, I began to have sort of a moral awakening. Um, really started on a very philosophical level, questions of justice and good and evil, and does human life have any objective value? And 
you know, it really set me down a, a road of concluding that there had to be some kind of higher power, some kind of God, some kind of, of objective basis by which we could distinguish why we eat a head of cabbage but not the head of a, a child. <laughs> and, you know, atheism gave me nothing to work with because it's just time plus, you know, space plus chance. And, and there's nothing, there's no objective. In fact, when you're really a diehard atheist, you, you insist that there is absolutely nothing, you know, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't live that. And yet with that moral awakening uh, came also what I can only say was the conviction of the Holy Spirit because I began to, to you know, I, I, I'd been gay. I'd known I was gay since I was 11 and was never really sexually active because those were the early 1980s when the, the AIDS epidemic was exploding. And and all the gay kids a little older than me were, were getting sick or terrified that they were going to die. And so um, what happened is is I, I began to have a sense of my own sinfulness and a sense that there was a God, and it was probably the Judeo-Christian God, whoever, whatever that was. But I had never read the Bible. I had never been to church. Um, and and I was just crushed by, by shame over my, my sexual orientation and even though in hindsight, that was probably <laughs> the least of my problems. I didn't know the Lord. Uh, but uh, in college at University of Virginia, studying architecture, became a Christian through uh, what then was Campus Crusade for Christ, its crew today. And uh, that's where I really first learned that, that sinful people were the only people that Jesus came to save, that righteous people need not apply. Hmm. And uh, that, that, God actually forgives sin, that Jesus bore that weight, and that he not only does that, but he clothes our shame, uh, which for me, you know, gay men in particular, you know, we're often, particularly my age, are crushed with shame. Uh, it, it drives us to be at the head of, you know, every, you know, every movement, every business venture, you know, every area of culture and the arts, we have to have the most perfect body, the most youthful appearance, the most fashionable wardrobe, the most over-the-top cocktail party, the most fabulous condo, uh, just to make ourselves lovable, to try mm -hmm. to, to deal with that toxic shame that is so present within us. And, uh, you know, trying to make ourselves lovable, pasting over our, our shame in an attempt to, to um, be free of, of, you know, what, what's been called the velvet rage of, of self-loathing. Hmm. And what I found, I was I became a Christian because I, I was convinced that it was true, that Jesus rose from the dead and that there is God. But what surprised me was the fact that my shame lifted so powerfully because, you know, I was looking at a Jesus who, who not only, you know, uh, not only, you know, took the blame for my sins and <laughs> my sinfulness, but... Um, more importantly, credited his righteousness to me so that, you know, it's as if I had fed the 5,000 and I raised Lazarus from the dead and I had always done what pleased the Father because mm -hmm. I have that unremovable suit of righteousness in Jesus. And 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 to this day, I mean, that's, that's what I wait, that's what gets me out of bed every day is the knowledge that God sees me all the way down and still wants to be in relationship with me, mm. that, that he loves me. He's not an angry ogre shaking a stick at me. He's my dad and he's wild about me. And, and that there's nothing a bunch of angry fundamentalists can do that will ever be able to take that from me because that's an identity that I carry into the coming age. It can't be robbed even, even by death. So it's 
been a, a joy. You know, I never had joy until I, I knew Jesus. Wow. That's really powerful. Thank you for sharing. And and I'd love to just hear, you know, you wrote this uh, book. It's called Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. So, again, I was surprised in such a great way by this book. And I, I still, I need to like think about what I was surprised by. I think I just, you, you did such a beautiful job of taking the last 50 plus years and just helping us understand it. But before we look backwards, and I really want to talk about C.S. Lewis, who's our Pope or whatever, who evangelical <laughs> Pope, even though he wasn't, he's something. Uh, uh, people tend to worship at his feet, perhaps a perhaps a bit idolatrously. Uh, but what's the landscape of the LGBTQ conversation in the church now from your perspective? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Well, uh, on, I mean, on the one hand, where things stand is since really the, the really since the, the, the ex-gay movement became a popular thing and its rise was really, I mean, it started in the 70s, but the 80s were huge. Say the um, say you said ex gay. So talk. So we're gonna have to already yeah. define that. What's ex gay mean? Yeah, the ex gay movement mm-hmm. um, beginning in the nineteen seventies with a a ministry. Um, you know, Exodus International was the umbrella, uh, and uh, um, Frank Worthen was a key founder there. But uh, it was it was a movement beginning in the nineteen seventies of uh, gay people who became Christians and who therefore then pursued orientation change uh, through various means. Uh, it could be through you know, prayer and devotions, it could be through ex-gay ministries, it could be through a reparative therapist or other forms of conversion therapy, of which there were many. But the idea, Frank Worthen said, was he said, when we founded Exodus International, the idea was that we could convert from gay to straight. Um, and he claimed a 70% success rate early on in the late 1970s. And that, you know, success rate then became 50% and then 30% and then 10% and then pretty much zero by the time Exodus closed in, uh, 2013, when, when the last president of Exodus International, Alan Chambers announced that 99.9% of Exodus clients had not seen a change in their sexual orientation. And, this is something that about 700,000 of us went through just in the United States. You know, it's, it's a huge number of people who passed through this movement and, and, and the offices of reparative therapists, um, and it, it failed. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, in, in the late 1990s explaining to a, a, a painter in my building, I, he, was, he was gay, and he said he could never be a, a Christian because of that. And I was like, well, I used to be gay. And, and within an ex-gay narrative, I wasn't lying. I was not closeted. I was an ex-gay, right. meaning that, and, and, and part of the complexity there is, is the use of equivocation within the ex-gay movement was astronomically huge. You know, when I said that I came out of homosexuality, what I meant was that I've chosen not to have sex with other guys. Right. But I was still a six on the Kinsey scale, which is the top of the scale, exclusively attracted to the same sex. Um, not even a, a hint or a whisper of attraction to a beautiful woman, it was mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet what people heard when I said I came out of homosexuality was that I used to be gay and now I'm straight. That's why it was called the ex-gay movement. Uh, you know, if I, 
you know, and then later on in the early 2000s, the reparative therapists developed the language of same-sex attraction, which which was great in comparison to ex-gay, because every time I called myself an ex-gay, I felt like I was lying through my teeth, because I, I, if, if gay was a lifestyle, I had never been in it. I was too afraid. And if gay was an orientation, it hadn't changed. So I, I couldn't figure out where the ex came from. <laughs> And uh, so when the the language of same-sex attraction was developed sort of as a replacement for it, um, you know, I jumped on that. And then, you know, I did the whole thing of, well, I'm I'm, I'm not gay. I just struggle with same-sex attraction. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the only people who nod and say, yeah, are conservative Christians. Everybody else thinks, what do you think gay means? You know, like, like, are you kidding me? Uh, But where we are now is the ex-gay movement's dead it's been dead for a decade it's still you know walking about sort of undead as a cadaver among us and i'm trying to you know get a silver spike through its heart to keep it down but uh but the the christian world the conservative bible believing we love jesus christian world has not picked up on the fact that that ex-gay narrative is dead and it's been dead. And it had been dying for years. I mean, it, into the late 1990s, Exodus leaders were questioning whether anybody was really changing their orientation. Uh, you had people learning to be faithful and obedient, but uh, they weren't, their, their sexual you know, temptations weren't switching gender. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of the Christian world hasn't picked up on that yet. And so the conversation right now is pretty ugly in conservative spaces um you know a kid says he's gay and they're immediately say you can't be gay and be a christian and they learned that from the ex-gay movement they're expecting that same kind of equivocation which is when you say one thing that could mean two different things so break that uh, down for people break that down for people because i always have to break it down slower so what are the two different things it could mean um, well, equivocation, you know, it, when you, it means that something can mean two different things. Mm-hmm. So when you say um, that I, I used to be gay, that could mean that my sexual orientation changed, or it could mean that I'm just choosing not to engage in sex mm-hmm. with the same sex. Yep. Um, and that was so pervasive that this new doctrine developed that you can't be gay and be a Christian because people had heard thousands of ex-gay testimonies of people who said that they weren't gay anymore, even though none of them had experienced orientation change. And so, you know, what I see with people in the church today is a lot of um, what's really experienced as as emotional abuse. Um, and uh, because people are being, that their terminology is being micromanaged, they're being judged. You know, if a gay person turns to Jesus, repents of their sin, um, gives up sex, gives up romance, gives up pornography, stops lusting, disciplines their mind, uh, and calls themselves same-sex attracted. That's a godly Christian who loves Jesus. Mm-hmm. But if a gay person turns to Jesus and repents of their sin and gives up sex and gives up romance and gives up porn and stops lusting and disciplines their mind and calls themselves gay, that's obviously a pastoral concern and obviously this person is lacking in wisdom mm-hmm. um i mean gosh my own denomination is sort of enshrining that within its own documents right now it's just so pervasive and people don't understand that 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 was 
that's that's a relic of a dead movement that failed. And there's an older narrative that Christians once had that we can get back to. And that's where I want to pivot because it is so encouraging. So guys, if you're listening right now and you're like cringing and you're like, but the word, the word, like I have people very close to me who send me articles ad nauseum all the time. They send them all the time about why we shouldn't use the word gay. And I love them dearly, but I'm just going to agree to disagree. So if you guys are one of those people who I love dearly and you're listening to this now and you're like, but I just, I want it the gay. It's not your identity. Your identity's in Christ. I hear you. You guys, I've said this before on the podcast. I'm going to say it till I see Jesus someday. That's a battle. I'm unwilling to fight. I think that we can just, just, can we just use language and respect people? I like how you had that in the preface of your book. You're like, can you, if you're, if this is causing you to stumble for lack of a better term, <laughs> just switch it out for language that you can better um, understand so that we can continue the conversation. We're not on this podcast going to die on that hill. So, so let's pivot where you are already naturally pivoting <laughs> to <laughs> how let's talk about CS Lewis and his gay best friend. Yeah. What was, what was his deal? Like that, I didn't know about that until you talked about it. Yeah, Lewis's best friend, even from before Lewis was a Christian, was a guy named Arthur Greaves. They grew up across the street from each other in Belfast in, in Northern Ireland. And uh, Arthur Greaves grew up in a very legalistic Plymouth Brethren church that was very oppressive, and, and he was gay. And uh, Lewis um, lived across the street from him. And Lewis says that, that Arthur was his first friend and his very, very best friend. Um, they vacationed together. They, the, the correspondence, just, just the letters of C.S. Lewis to Arthur uh, are collected in a volume that's almost 600 pages. So they were constant, they were best friends forever. And, uh, and when, you know, Greaves came out to Lewis as gay in 1918. Um, you know, Lewis was still an atheist at the time, but he was very supportive. He didn't necessarily agree, but he was very supportive and and didn't feel like he was in much of a position to judge, you know, Arthur, because because Lewis's own struggle had been with with sadomasochism. Um, Alistair McGrath uh, draws all that out in his recent biography of, of Lewis. Uh, Lewis had signed letters uh, to, to Arthur, uh, philomastix, which means whip lover. And, uh, and then, of course, when Lewis, a few years later, became a Christian, you know, the first person he told was, was his gay best friend, Arthur. And, uh, and, and he, at that point, asked Arthur to, to destroy the letters with the whip lover bit um, because he, he felt that he had this, what he called an unnatural desire to combine intimacy with the infliction of pain and and arthur he didn't get rid of him he he kind of like you know i don't know what their equivalent of, of whiteout was by, by back then but he covered it up but you know historians are good they can get that stuff off and so mm. so now we know um part of why lewis never had an issue with gay people was was because he knew his heterosexuality was every bit as fallen as Arthur's homosexuality. Um, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful relationship they had. And, you know, there's, you know, times where, uh, you know, uh, Lewis would comfort Arthur, you know, a point where Arthur had, had broken off a relationship, an unhealthy relationship with another man. And, 
and Lewis, um, his response was very, very kind and very supportive. I had tears in my eyes when I read that part. I'm just going to quote it back to you. Uh, this is Lewis to Arthur, and he says, as regards to your news, sympathy. So this is after his breakup. Sympathy on the wrench of parting and the gap it will leave. I don't think you exaggerate at all in your account of how it feels. Uh, when I broke up with a girlfriend, I, it was unbearable pain. And I just remember being so grateful to one friend who, to whom I could speak and actually to my husband now. Is that dysfunctional? Yeah, it's dysfunctional. We'll just talk. You can read our book. See at our book about more of that. Uh, but they, those were two people who responded like Lewis. And it was such a, it wasn't even breath of fresh air. It was like a, a, a well of life because I needed to grieve this real relationship that ended. And I felt so much shame and self-hatred and didn't feel safe anywhere. Can you, in, in your own experience, uh, perhaps, or in your research of this, um, why do so many church people feel so scared of engaging like Lewis with a gay best friend and specifically in empathy when relationships end? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think um, we don't have a very good anthropology, a very good understanding practically of, of how human nature works, both as creatures made in God's image and as creatures affected by the fall. Um, you know, and so like when somebody goes through a terrible breakup with a, with a same sex partner, I think the instinct of a lot of Christians is to emphasize, well, it's a good thing that that needed to go. That was against God. Right. And because they're just thinking of the actual sin of the actual sexual union, they're not thinking of all the other things that are at play there because we're made in God's image. Um, we were made for relationship. We were made for intimacy. We were made to be known. I mean, you talk about this a lot. This is, this is, this is, this is, I'm preaching to the choir here, <laughs> but um, you know, when, when somebody goes through a breakup, you know, they are, the image of God in them is grieving the loss of good things. Yep. Don't ever tell anybody to repent of their longing for intimacy. That's part of God's image in us because we were made for community to reflect a God who is himself triune and eternal community. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's why we were made, you know, in his image, according to his likeness. And, uh, and because we think only in terms of sin and not in terms of creation, um, we tend to flatten, particularly gay or same-sex attracted people, we flatten them into sodomy, you know, and not human beings who who need relationship and love. And there were probably really good and beautiful things. You know, John Stock in 1978-79 sermons on homosexuality, what later became his, his um, a part of his, his issues in 1982 in his little book on same-sex relationships the same year, he, he talked about how gay partnerships can absolutely be loving because we're made in God's image. And, and that, um, but that for the Christian, our highest calling of love toward a fellow Christian is to want them to walk with God. And so Christians can't engage in these sorts of things because it actually wouldn't be loving enough 
to to be leading a fellow believer into into sin because mm. true love wants him to, to thrive or, or to thrive in Jesus. Mm. Uh, but um, yeah, I think I think we're afraid to love and to show empathy because somebody somewhere might think that we're approving of of gay sex when we're not approving of gay sex. We're empathizing with somebody weeping with them as they weep, grieving as they grieve. Mm-hmm. It's the call of love. And, um, you know, we always love to tell everybody that Jesus loves them, um, but only only gay people hear Jesus loves you, but. And I think that same issue at heart is, is there, this fear that, that we might be approving of something, that we want to make sure that they're dealing with their sin. Mm. But we still got to love. I think it's important to underscore that fear because that's what I notice when I'm talking with a lot of people when we've been teaching these last seven years is it's there's so much fear of like sinning before God. Like I, I'll always say, so you don't have to say I love you and then like the but, like the, but I don't affirm same-sex relationships. I said, you can just stop the butts and just say I love you. <laughs> And, and just have, I, I say this more often than I thought I would ever say it in a teaching context, have a normal conversation, like a normal person. <laughs> like, I, I don't, the anxiety is just the, like, I'm going to affirm same-sex relationships. No, no, no. Loving a person is not the same thing as affirming same-sex relationships. Just walk with yeah. them, love them where they're at. Yeah. And for all the lecturing that, you know, side B folks get about, you know, not identifying with your sin, you know, it'd be a lot easier to not do that if every Christian that we know wasn't continually identifying us with our sin. That's you know, what's flattening up. us into sodomy. Exactly. But, you know. Exactly. Ugh. Do you uh, have any other thoughts on, you know, Billy Graham, John Stott, Francis Schaefer? I just love how you walk through each of these men who I, I heard so many good things growing up about them, and I never heard their stance on sexual uh, homosex, homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they all held to the biblical sexual ethic. Not not a one of them supported Christian gay marriage. They, they would thought that was very damaging to the soul. Um, but um you know, I think of, of like Francis Schaeffer, who, you know, when he founded Labrie in Switzerland, it was this place where people could come and, and it was frequented by both gay men and, and lesbian women wrestling with their faith, trying to figure out what they really believed. And, and Schaeffer never told them that they needed to, to change and become straight. He actually, you know, told people that it was cruel to tell someone that if they became a Christian, that their sexual orientation would, would change. He his his response was we're, we're you know it's not magic we're still sinners you know <laughs> um, but uh, he would defend gay people regularly um, there was a point in 1968 when a European pastor had had written to Schaefer because he had seen five or six gay men commit suicide mm-hmm. and he just wanted to know what what can I do you know this something's obviously really wrong with uh, churches and, and people who, I mean, his term would have been homosexual or homophile mm-hmm. um, at that time in the 60s. And, uh, you know, Schaefer lamented the way that the church had been complicit in marginalizing gay people. Uh, he said that, that 
particularly Orthodox church life, pushes them out. And he said that is both cruel and wrong. Um, he you know, understood and, and explained to people that, you know, particularly a man who is exclusively attracted to the same sex is probably always going to be. Um, and, and that may involve a call to celibacy. And he said, we can weep with them because the church has to be the family, hmm. the family of Jesus. Um, you know, Schaefer, gosh, when he first met Jerry Falwell Sr. Oh, yeah, I love this story. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was hilarious because he, he's sitting there with his son, Frank, and, uh, and they're talking about all sorts of cultural stuff and, you know, whatnot, and philosophy and all the stuff that Schaefer loved to talk about as an apologist for, for, the, for Christianity. And, and then, you know, at one point, Falwell leans in and says, well, what do you think about homosexuals? And Schaefer did the classic Schaefer thing. He kind of sat back paused for a while and said, well, I think it's a very complicated issue. And Falwell, you know, jumped back, jumped on him and said, if, if I had a dog that did what those people do, I'd shoot it. And he wasn't joking. He, he meant it. Mm. And uh, Schaefer, on leaving, turned to Frank and said, this man is disgusting. You know, because <laughs> he was seeing homophobia. Yeah. He could tell the difference between holding to a biblical orthodox christian doctrine of sex and marriage and rank raw ugly homophobia and in falwell he knew which one he was looking at Mm -hmm. um you know francis schaefer uh was was one but also you know billy graham you know in 1964 gosh before most people ever talked about homosexuality certainly before gay rights movement ever existed uh one of lyndon johnson's top aides, uh, Walter Jenkins, was busted in a YMCA restroom, you know, having sex with another guy. And this was just weeks before the 1964 presidential election. And he had been LBJ's right-hand man from from Texas through the vice presidency straight into the White House. And it, it blew up all over the media. Um, you know, uh, uh, Barry Goldwater, his Republican opponent, had bumper stickers printed up that said all the way with LBJ, but don't go near the YMCA. Uh, And uh, so, you know, Jenkins, of course, resigned immediately uh, because homosexual homosexual practice was still illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, a few days after the, the scandal broke, Billy Graham called the White House and and asked to speak to the president. He was the pastor of presidents. And so LBJ took the call. And in it, they, they small talked for a couple couple minutes, and then Graham got down to the real reason he called, which was that he wanted the president to understand that we're all sinners. And Billy Graham stressed, I know it's in my own heart, and we're no different. He, he placed himself in a position of solidarity with this gay father of, like, six kids who had just, you know, threatened the very foundation of, of the, the Johnson presidency. Um, and, uh, but he was advocating, Graham was using the power he had and the influence he had to advocate for a gay man who had fallen into sin and public scandal. And he asked him to, to give him his love and please remember to always give him mercy. Um, you know, this was the same Graham who in 1975 was quoted in the Atlanta journal constitution. The, the headline was, uh, Graham backs ordaining homosexuals. <laughs> Graham had been asked whether he would support a, a homosexual 
uh, man, that was the term in the 70s, a gay man, um, going into ordained ministry. And he, he said, yes, if he's comes to Jesus and repents and is committed to, to walking in obedience to Christ and he gets the right credentials and he, he gets the right training and, and whatnot. And it was the exact same answer he would give for a straight person. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the Billy Graham who continually tried to avoid politicizing the gospel. Throughout the 1980s and 90s, um, kind of conservative politicians were always trying to get him to speak about um, whether it, it was uh, gay adoption or what it was at the moment. He always refused. And he got quite testy with reporters that would prod. He would say, you know, I'm here to preach the gospel. And whatever your sexual orientation, I want you to hear that God loves you. And I want you to hear about Jesus. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't going to take sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then jo- John Stott in 1980, this was the guy that the BBC called the Protestant Pope. <laughs> uh, John Stott, All Souls Langham Place, you know, sold a couple million copies of his book, Basic Christianity, which is 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 good for a Christian book. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, uh, you know, in 1980, he gathered a, a bunch of Anglican evangelicals together to produce a pastoral document outlining the pastoral care for gay people who follow Jesus. And what they led with um, was a public repentance public statement of repentance for the the homophobia that they saw in their own hearts. And they called other Christians to join them in repenting of that homophobia. And they specifically called for the ordination of non-practicing of gay Christians. This was 1980, you know? That's crazy. So, yeah, Stott said, uh, you know, um, if 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 the church can't be family for gay people, if they can't be known and loved and understood within the church, then the church needs to quit calling itself the family of God. Mm. Hey, Matt, have you noticed? I've been using a different Bible lately. I have. Is it a CSB? Yes, it's a Christian Standard Bible. It's the She Reads Truth one. Are you telling me that you don't just talk about the CSB on ads like this, but you actually read it? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I do actually read it. I'm reading the She Reads Truth one every day now for a bunch of reasons, but the biggest one is I love the margins. I love writing the date and some prayers and real life stuff in it. Do you write about me in there? Um, yes. Like, thank you, Jesus, for how awesome my husband is dated every day of my life? Um, no. Okay, seriously, guys listening, I am loving not only the margins where I can write only gratitude to the Lord for my awesome husband, Matt, but I love that it was edited by women and the devotionals in it are actually uplifting and not fluffy or patronizing. And the timelines, each book of the Bible has this timeline that helps me to understand what's happening in this book in relationship to the rest of the canon of the Bible. Okay, fine. That's fine. Even if you write real stuff about me in it. Okay, well, you can get one too and write real life prayers about me in it. You know your girl needs them. Yeah, well, I need them too. (laughs) So where can I get this Bible or another Bible like it? Well, you can find the She Reads Truth Bible or any of the CSB versions by hitting up csbible.com. So what is up with the obsession 
The ice still here in some people of wanting gay people to be straight, even if they're like, oh, no, 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 of course not. Reparative therapy. Now that no, no, no. But don't you just want to marry someone? Is it we're so obsessed with a nuclear family? Like, what is this like insatiable drive? Yeah, and it's stronger in North America than in Europe. You know, in like when I talk to friends in the UK, you know, there's no there, there's 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 a long history of celibacy. You know, it used to be to be, you know, a don at, at Oxford or Cambridge to, to be a professor. You had to be celibate. Uh, if you married, you lost your teaching position. It's why guys like, you know, C.S. Lewis was only married for four years. And that started as a marriage to help. You know, it started as a sympathy marriage. He, he, he was trying to help the, the woman he cared about but wasn't in love with uh, not get kicked out of the country. And so he married her. But then she got cancer and he actually fell mad, madly in love with her. And, but all but four years, he was celibate. Um, you know, that, but in the United States, it's different. Um, you know, and I think part of it is that um, we have tended to follow our secular culture in defining happiness and the fulfilling life as being romantically attached um, and and having a family, having children. And um, to the point where, I mean, I remember even seeing tweets from conservative Christian leaders saying, you know, a, a true godliness is getting married and having children. And, mm-hmm. you know, the obvious response is, well, then Jesus wasn't godly. Oh, snap. You know, um, I mean, J. Gresham Machen, who was the father of fundamentalism in the 1920s, you, you know, he never married. He never seemed to have any interest in, in women. He, he was focused on his, his work, his scholarship, his teaching, founding Westminster Seminary. Um, you know, there, there's a long history of, of, of celibacy within Christianity, but, but modern evangelicals have focused on the family and, uh, and uh, to, the, to the neglect. And, you know, uh, I, I, I think the family is, is a gift of God, but God calls some people to live in light of the ethics of the present age, which is you know, typical marry have children but he calls some of us to, to live in light of the ethics of the coming age uh, to be eunuchs for the kingdom as jesus explained hmm. um in fact he said the one who can do this should do it he, he and and saint paul in first corinthians 7 really commends celibacy he says i wish everyone could be like i am uh you know <laughs> yeah. and he says that the one who who marries the virgin does well the one who doesn't marry does better you know <laughs> So uh, Jesus explained, you know, in the coming age, there will be neither marriage nor mar- neither marrying nor marriage, but we'll be like the angels. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's a, a learning curve that's steep, but a lot of it is just, you know, I mean, I've had so many people tell me, like, when I tell them that, you know, my orientation is very unlikely to change, you know, I... I my, my life orientation has changed, but my sexual temptations aren't likely to switch gender. And they, they look at me and they just say, then where do you find hope? And it's so telling that that's what conservative Christians think. There's no hope otherwise. I'm like, <laughs> I have all the hope I could ever wish for. You know, I'm going to be in glory. Know. You know, if it's for this life only that we have hope, we're to be pitied above all people. But uh, 
yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of idolatry, and uh, and it's it, they don't understand it's that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just this unquestioned assumption that to have any hope in life, you have to be married and have kids. What else is worth living for? And I'm always ready to say, Jesus. <laughs> you heard of him? Seriously, it, it is very telling about where their priorities are when when people say things like that. Um, yeah. And they're well-meaning. They're not trying of to Of course. Meaning. Of course they are. It's just, oh, that is that is what we've worshipped, is the nuclear family. <laughs> so a little bit of a pivot. Um, Greg, I, you know, I've been watching from afar and praying for you personally, just as I've watched, you know, you, you've alluded to some of the denominational pain just as uh, that you're a part of um, as it relates to language of how you, what, how you identify. Um, share what you want about that, but just what's been some of the pain of the present day engagement of the church and this conversation. And and I'm extra curious about your processing. I'm in a season of processing my own hurt of publicly engaging this conversation. So I'm just genuinely curious for myself, but also those listening, what's your processing like? Yeah, you know, it's been, it's been really hard. Um, you know, starting back in early 2018, when our church ho- agreed to host the Revoice 18 conference, that first one, um, just the amount of hate mail, the vicious stuff. I mean, our our church office was getting one word emails, Satan, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And, <laughs> and I wanted to tell our operations manager just to, you know, Google an image of of the church lady and re- respond with that. You know, because that's what it sounds like. This is like an SNL skit. Yeah. Um, the number of people who told me that I was going to hell, um, the number of people who um, just just said a lot of false things, a lot of slander, um, and that's continued for three and a half years and hasn't really let up. Um, mm. And and even within my own denomination. Uh, there is a fundamentalist wing within the Presbyterian Church in America that's kind of trying to take over right now, and they've capitalized on me as a rallying cry, um, you know, kind of saying, you know, the gays have taken over the entire culture. They've got Hollywood, they got television, the movies, the newspapers, the, the, the universities, the public schools, and now they're trying to take over the church. Look, we've already got one in a pastoral position, and they point at me. Oh, uh, even though, you know, I have typically described myself as same-sex attracted, but I never object if somebody calls me gay. I certainly, you know, my orientation has never changed. And, and when you talk about the psychology of gay men, I'm always going to put myself in there because that's so totally me. Right. Same issues. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, they just, uh, there's just a viciousness to it and a, a self-righteousness to it. And, and, uh, you know, the hardest part, honestly, has not been um, the things that are said about me, but the number of people who I thought were my friends who backed away from me mm-hmm. uh, out of fear of collateral damage. Um, you know, there was a, a quote that I, that I saw of Martin Luther King Jr. Who, who said that the thing you remember are not the words of your enemies, but the silence of your friends. Mm. And never was a truer word spoken by a minister of the gospel. Um, you know, just 
the number of people who can't can't endorse my book, can't even though they agree with it, uh, who can't speak up in defense of me, who can't do, who who offer private support but public silence, yep. which is just cruel. Yep. I mean, if you're not going to support somebody who's being bludgeoned to death, then don't tell them you support them privately and then not support them. Yeah, you know that that's, that's that's not right. Um, there was a point in 2018 when I was probably crying every single day for six months, and yet in the midst of that, I saw the love of Jesus for me wow. so clear. And often those tearful cries of sorrow very quickly transitioned into the tears of joy as I, I really felt my father smiling upon me and delighting in me um, as, as, as his own. And so there, there are things that I would not trade for anything because through that I've come to know Jesus so much more closely and so much more intimately. Um, I wouldn't change it for the world, but it's been brutal. And, and in my own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, you know, they're starting uh, in 2018, about three, over three years ago, they started, you know, the people started demanding that I be investigated, that I be tried, defrocked, deposed, excommunicated, and all that kind of stuff, removed from pastoral office. And uh, and I remember requesting at one point, requesting that my presbytery investigate me, <laughs> which they did, and it was hundreds of pages long report that exonerated me. And then um, and then when I did my testimony in Christianity Today back two and a half years ago. Um, which was the testimony of gay atheist who met Jesus and his total life totally changed, but his orientation didn't. Um, then they, they, the same folks came and demanded a trial that I be tried for. I think that the charges were, if I remember correctly, that I, I um, denied um, my identity in Christ by identifying as a same-sex attracted man <laughs> and that I denied the power of God to change people by uh, uh, questioning sexual orientation change efforts efficacy. And, uh, and so again, that one big long investigation took a long time, hundreds of pages long report, exonerated me again, found no basis oh, for charges. And God. so then they appealed that to our denominational Supreme Court, which just last, I mean, it's been three and a half year process, but last, last month um, uh, cleared me again by a supermajority, which can't be appealed further, um, you know, 16 to seven vote, uh, that there was no basis for trying me. And so now what they're doing is, is they're trying to change our church constitution. Like they couldn't get me based on the church constitution that now stands, I was found innocent. So they're, they're changing the wording to ban same-sex attracted or gay Christians for ministry. Uh, so um, it's, it's hard because it seems to be just sailing through the presbyteries, you know, the, the the majority of elders in my denomination want me gone. And uh, and that's a hard place to be because I became a Christian. Uh, the guy who led me to Christ was a, worshipped at a PCA church. Um, the first church I ever walked into as a believer was a PCA church, Trinity Present, Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, I was baptized at a PCA church at age 20 in the DC area. Uh, it was a PCA uh, people who encouraged me to go to Covenant Seminary. And 
the PCA folks who trained me for ministry and encouraged me to go get a PhD and ordained me for ministry and and have defended me every step of the way, and yet to have this same body uh, turn out to be somebody different than you thought is is hard. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. yeah, I don't regret, you know, sharing my story publicly because of the number. I mean, I, I always tell people I'm the most hated person in the PCA until your kid or grandkid tells you they're gay. Of course. And then I'm the most important man on the planet. And <laughs> I've had so many PCA pastors, elders, uh, leaders call me up because it's their kid, it's their grandkid, it's a member of their church's kid, and uh, and I'm the guy that they're looking to for help. And so um, I'm not giving up any hope on the in the PCA, but I think it's going to be a lot of years before there's a real repentance for its its homophobia. Some of the most wonderful, God-loving, Jesus-loving people I've ever met are in the PCA. Covenant Seminary, I think, is the best seminary on the planet. PCA's campus ministry, RUF, is amazing, but there is an underbelly of homophobia within the churches, yeah. uh, particularly within the laity, within uh, that is pretty fierce um, a lot of fear with fear uh, there's so many times and I have not had the same vein and pain although I'm not going to negate my own pain that you've experienced but it's so it, I just am relating in the sense that I, I'm like I always want to give the church the benefit of the doubt. I always want to like believe the best. And then there's sometimes you just hit these brick walls and you're just like, Are you kidding? You're you're actually saying this. This is actually happening right now. And it's just so easy to throw up your hands and just either go to rage. For me, the proper response, my healthy response is grief, which leads to forgiveness, which leads to love. So yeah. Yeah, I've already I've already forgiven in my heart yeah. for God, you know, all those involved. And, and in fairness, there are a lot of pastors in the PCA who are really pulling for me and speaking up for me, mm -hmm. but their voice is getting grounded right. out. And right. so what it, what it looks like is one more time in which all the straight kids get together to kick the gay kid off the playground. And and I expected that as a non-Christian. I didn't expect that from the church. And so, um, so with still time to care, you know, I am going back to 1978 when Richard Lovelace, who was, um, you know, a prominent, you know, church historian and uh, Presbyterian churchman, conservative at Gordon-Conwell uh, Seminary, um, when he called in a book, Homosexuality in the Church, this is over 40 years ago, he called for what he called a double repentance, uh, a repentance in which the church's gay members, and that's the term he used because same-sex attraction wasn't invented yet, uh, but gay believers in the, in the pews repent of their, their homosexual practice, and the church repents of its homophobia. And the evidence of the church repenting of its homophobia, Richard Lovelace explained, was to actively recruit, develop, train, and ordain non-practicing gay men to ministry. Hmm. Um, that I go back to that because the church had it right, at least evangelical elites. And this was a this was a book, you know, this book, 1978 Lovelace book had endorsements from 
Ken Cancer, the former uh, uh, um, Christianity Today editor mm-hmm. from Elizabeth Elliot, she is not a liberal. From Chuck Colson, he is not a Marxist. You know, these are these are you know from from uh, Carl Ockengay and and Carl, or, or, or Harold Ockengay and Carl F. H. Henry, who were the fathers of the neo evangelical movement in the nineteen forties, uh, from which all of our campus ministries and and whatnot have flowed. You know. Uh, these were the, the most prominent conservative Christian voices on the planet saying this double repentance, this is the way to go. And yet I think what happened with the ex-gay movement is this narrative that, oh, gay people, we don't have to repent of our homophobia. They can just become straight. Yep. And so here we are 43 years later and the a lot of churches are still not repenting of their homophobia, and they're still thinking, you know, if you just pray enough, yeah, maybe you won't become fully heterosexual, but you'll you'll be able to function heterosexual. You'll be able to get enough to, to get married. And I'm like, well, I'm a 49-year-old virgin, and that's pretty rare in my demographic box. Yeah. And it hasn't happened yet, and it's not from a lack of asking. Um, you know, I did the ex-gay movement. I, I, I'm a survivor, <laughs> but it, it didn't work. And so we need to get back to that, that narrative that our spiritual grandfathers had yeah. of all of us repenting and turning to Jesus together. Praise God. God will help us to do it. So one last question for you, Greg. Um, why is Jesus worth following now? Yeah. In 2021. Yeah. Well, he's worth following because he actually rose from the dead and defeated death. And what I, even when I feel like my own denomination is beating me up, I turn to Jesus and I say, Lord, where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And, and Jesus is worth it. I've been an atheist. I never had to deconstruct anything. I deconstructed my atheism and ended up in Jesus. Um, and because he's worth it. You know, he, he is real. He's alive. And he loves sinners. Uh, he's a friend of sinners. You know, um, you know my, my, my grandfather on my mom's side was a coal miner up in Appalachia, up in the hills of Virginia so far west into Virginia that you had to drive east to get into West Virginia. Um, but he had, he had, at age 10, he no, actually age six, he dropped out of first grade to work in the mines and had all sorts of injuries. But uh, because of him, I was always um, fascinated whenever I'd hear a story about mine collapses and rescues because he had survived some of those. Hmm. And I remember a story more recently about a uh, two miners who uh, were trapped after a mine collapse in a very small chamber that didn't have a lot of oxygen in it, and they knew it was going to take a long time to dig them out. And and eventually, as the air started to get very, it was, it was hard to breathe, and they were starting to lose consciousness, they got got out their respirators to to for oxygen, and uh, and it became clear that, that one of their respirators wasn't working. And uh, his best friend was was the other guy in the room with him, a single guy, and, and he was watching his friend pass out with a failed respirator. And he was thinking of his friend's uh, wife and, and little son. And he crawled over the, the chamber 
and saddled himself up right up next to his best friend and took off his respirator and put it on his friend. And, and that friend was carried out alive um, because the one minor gave his life so that he could live. And, and that's what our best friend Jesus did for us. That's what he did for you, for me. Mm. Only it, it wasn't, you know, we weren't his best friend. You know, we were, imagine it was the guy who stole his wife or something, you know. That's what Jesus did for us because <laughs> when we were sinners that Christ died for us. Um, and so I don't see that anywhere else in the world. Um, I don't see self-giving, self-sacrificial love from God anywhere else. No. And, uh, you know, I think uh, ultimately, you know, none of us escapes this, this world alive. But Jesus was dead and he's alive. And I think the historic case is absolutely solid. And he's going he's gonna to carry us through to the other side. And uh, churches may disappoint us a lot, but, but Jesus is always faithful. And uh, yeah. he's our friend. Amen. How can people find more about your work? Yeah, well, you can go to stilltimetocare.com mm-hmm. or just Google Still Time to Care. And uh, that'll take you to a website where, you know, you take you all different places. You can you can get it um, if you, you know, pre-order it. There are all sorts of bonuses. It comes out December 7th. So, um, you know, the, the, the Audible is already available, but the Kindle and the paperback are December 7th. And uh, yeah, you can get it there. Um, you can also look me up on, on Twitter, PCA Memorial, um, and uh, find more stuff there. And uh, if you look, uh, if you Google my name, Greg Johnson and Christianity Today, you'll get both a recent article I did that's a, sort of the cliff notes on the book, as well as a, a connect, it'll connect you to my, my testimony of how Jesus captured me. It's such a good article. Greg, if people wanted to write you not a Satan with three exclamation points email, but a kind email, can, I, can they email me and then we'll punt it to you? Would that be all right? Absolutely. That'd all right. Great. All right, guys. So that's your invitation from Lori for Greg is please send me some emails <laughs> for Greg. Send them to podcast at com, and then uh, we'll vet to make sure you didn't do Satan and expletives. We won't forward those on, um, but we'll send you some encouragement. So, um, Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, that joy that you alluded to that you only found in Jesus is present, even though you're going through and maybe because you're going through, I don't know, uh, but this suffering. Thank you for showing and embodying that joy of Jesus. Oh, thank you for having me on, Lori. It's been great. Man, guys, it just, it always gets me to hear people who are suffering and yet love Jesus and especially are suffering at the hands of the church. So I'm going to be thinking about this episode for a while. Thank you again to Greg Johnson. And guys, go live out the good news of the gospel in a world that is so desperate and hurting for it. And for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week.